Welcome back to Cause Talk Radio, another true story from True Story FM. I'm your host, Megan Strand with Engage for Good. You can find full show notes and additional resources for today's episode at engageforgood.com. Today's episode is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com forward slash cause talk radio. There's over 180,000 titles for you to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Go to audibletrial.com forward slash cause talk radio and get your free audiobook today. Roughly 300 million children have been without school meals and are at risk of hunger since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic. And even before COVID, an estimated 73 million vulnerable children were not being reached with food at school. We know that number has risen dramatically in recent months and will continue to rise without urgent action by government, the private sector, and civil society. In this episode of Cause Talk Radio, I speak with Stephanie Slingerland, Kellogg Company Senior Director of Philanthropy and Social Impact, and Lisa Moon, President and CEO of the Global Food Banking Network, about the state of childhood hunger around the globe and their collaborative efforts to pivot their critical school feeding programs during this global pandemic. Lisa and Stephanie, and welcome to Cause Talk Radio. Hi, Megan. Thanks so much for having us. Hi, Megan. Thanks. Stephanie, would you just start us out today by giving us a quick overview of what you do at Kellogg? Sure. So I oversee our global philanthropy work, um, which is focused uh, through our Better Days program on hunger relief. So I uh, take a look at partners that we work with and the charitable gifts we as a company will make to those organizations to help further the work that we do to support hunger relief. Fantastic. Thank you. Um, So Lisa, as the president of CEO of the Global Food Banking Network, I'm not going to ask you what you do because we know what you do because you're the chief woman in charge. But maybe you could tell us a little bit about your nonprofit organization and how Kellogg is involved. Yes, absolutely. And thanks again, Megan. And it's such a pleasure to be here with you and with Stephanie um, and talk about this important partnership that the Global Food Banking Network has with Kellogg's. So the Global Food Banking Network, or GFN for short, um, is an international development organization with a mission to nourish the world's hungry through uniting and advancing food banks. And obviously, if you are based in the United States or even in Western Europe, we have seen firsthand at how food banks are providing such a critical support to so many of our neighbors that um, are, have fallen on hard times during the COVID crisis. So the Global Food Banking Network is fortunate to serve food banks in 44 countries. The majority of them are in emerging and developing markets. And last year, those organizations provided approximately 1.4 billion meals to about 17 million people facing hunger. Um, The Kellogg's company is a critical partner to GFN in the sense that they're actually a founding partner of our organization in 2006. And since that time, it's through that partnership that we've been able to work together to reach, frankly, millions of people in need and especially reach children who might be missing meals at school. So it's great to be here to talk a little bit more about that today. 
Fantastic. Thank you so much. And it was just good to have a background when I was doing a little bit of research for this episode. It, you have a map, I think, on your site, or I believe it was on your site, of the world. And it was like, okay, the United States is run by primarily Feeding America-type food banks, and then right. the Global Food Banking Network is in all these other countries. And then there was another a different network in, was it Europe, that had... That's correct. Yeah. Yeah, So, so we work very closely, yeah, with the European Federation. Um, but most of our work is on emerging and developing markets where there is such significant need. Yes. That was super helpful for me. Thank you for having that map on your website. It's super helpful for me to understand kind of what we were talking about in terms of your purview. So glad to hear it. (laughs) Stephanie, even before COVID, childhood hunger was a critical issue. We all know that. Um, can you talk a little bit about what you all learned from the recent study that was conducted by the Global Food Banking? network as it related to childhood hunger? Yes. So um, as Lisa said, we've been longtime partners um, and focusing on childhood hunger has been critical to Kellogg, uh, particularly working on the issue of school breakfast programs. As the world's largest cereal company, we know how important it is uh, for children to get access to breakfast every day and partners like Global Food Banking Network help to make that happen. So we worked together on a report looking a little bit more at the issue of childhood hunger. And one of the key things that we found through that report is, of course, it was no surprise to us how critical Um, having access to nourishing foods is important for a child's early development. Uh, But that's really critical for his or her first 8,000 days to help them set them up for success into the future. Um, And uh, the hunger relief programs are so important to help children get through, through that time and beyond. Um, And the other thing we found through that is community-based approaches that bring together multiple partners to address this um, is really uh, most effective in helping to bring those programs to life. And the food bank network is a critical um, component of that because they're so ingrained within their local communities. They know the issue so well um, and can really work to help bring these programs to life in the most effective and efficient way. Is that is that a publicly available study, like some of the results from that? Okay, perfect. So we can put that in the show notes. For those of you who can't see them both nodding, they're both nodding their heads right now saying yes, <laughs> yeah, they can. So sometimes right. I have to uh, remember that we're just recording the audio and people can't see what I see. Um, so Lisa, can you talk a little bit about what COVID has done to these already very sobering statistics? And as we've said earlier, you know, we've all known that childhood hunger and food insecurity mm. is a big issue to begin with. But I, talk a little bit about what COVID's done to that existing issue. Yeah, I mean, you know, one of the the biggest challenges with COVID, of course, is that you saw school closures almost immediately at the start of the pandemic. And um, they they actually estimate now that you still have 800 million children worldwide, either learning remotely or are in communities where there are, are school closures. So, you know, as Stephanie mentioned, a lot of, of kids facing food insecurity, which is about 300 million children worldwide, count on that meal at school, whether it be a breakfast or a lunch, really to help them get the core part of their calories and their nutrients for the day. So in the COVID environment, if you're not obviously having those kids at school, they're they're missing out on a big part of that. Um, You know, one of the things, of course, at the food banks that that we work with, approximately half of them are involved in some way in school feeding programs. Um, In the COVID environment, they've had to shift kind of their distribution uh, to doing packs for the families. Um, It's a little bit more intensive in terms of logistics. But, you know, as we're getting into seven months into the pandemic, it's really sobering to think about that we may 
may need to be continuing in this format for the next, you know, six to 12 months. Um, the one thing, though, that we are really focusing on is trying to maintain a strong relationship with the families, um, even in spite of the closures, because once schools reopen, one thing, of course, that school meals do, in addition to getting those kids the nutrients they need to learn and be able to absorb fully um, everything that, that they do at school so they can reach their potentials, also make sure that they actually go back to school. And, um, you know, many families that are impoverished, especially in lower and middle income countries, you know, are working in the informal labor markets, which have been very, very severely affected by COVID. And so there's going to be added pressure for everyone who is able to in the household to work to try to get income in for the family. And so what we don't want to do is seeing parents who are already having to make very difficult choices about purchasing food, medicine, or whatever, have to make a choice that their children would have to work, you know, as opposed to going back to school. So school meals provide a very attractive way to get children in school, especially to get girls into school um, and to keep them there so they can get their full education. How specifically are you finding to get, so let's say in those areas where kids are still at home or learning remotely, how are you getting food there? Like in my neighborhood, we're still in the Pacific Northwest. A lot of us are still out of school. Um, in the past, like when school closures happened, they were doing um, school bus deliveries. So they would run the school bus routes and they would, but I know that that like not in, not every country has a school bus route. Like a lot of these kids are walking to school in a developing company so or country. How are they doing that? In, in many places, they have set up kind of drop points at the schools. So you have families are walking in and grabbing the parcels and then, you know what I mean, going back home. There are some places where they've been able to do delivery. That's as happened, for example, in Australia um, and in Jordan. But those those food banks have really strong logistics, you know, in place. So they're able to handle kind of a switch to delivery. But I think as we kind of get further into the pandemic, as closures persist, just to make sure that food banks can continue to you know, to finance more or less, you know, this massive relief effort, those drop points are going to be the most efficient way to, um, to make sure they can continue providing parcels. And, and Lisa, if I can jump in, I think it's your organization that had told us too, that, you know, as you mentioned, schools are having to look at different delivery models. Um, and in some cases, um, the teachers have stepped up and are personally taking these, these parcels to the families. I think you had said there was, um, I can't remember where it was, but there was a remote village um, where the teachers were, because they knew that the students needed the food, they the teachers were taking the food to these remote villages um, and delivering it to the kids to make sure that they were still getting the food that they needed. Teachers are amazing. That's a great, thank you for adding that, Stephanie. That's, it's just so heartwarming to hear. Stephanie, tell us what Kellogg is doing to help kids get the nutrition that they need in the pa in the pandemic. Have, how have you guys specifically had to pivot due to COVID? Yes, exactly. Well, as Lisa mentioned, um, and we were just talking about the different models that schools have had to shift um, to in uh, this time to continue to make sure that kids are getting access to the, the food that they need. So, you know, we work with organizations like Global Food Banking Network to help provide those grants to the schools to get the things that they need. Um, so, you know, it has been uh, continuing to provide those grants for the schools so they can get the equipment and um, uh, resources that they need to, to deliver those meals. They're just doing it maybe in a different way. You know, maybe they don't need the cart that brings the, the, the 
food down the hallway anymore. They need the coolers that they can carry so that, you know, they can bring the food to the families, whether it's on the bus, like you mentioned, many schools were doing bus distributions um, in communities where they have them, or if they're meeting at certain drop points where families then can come and pick up those meals. So Lisa, can you just talk generally and about why school-based feeding programs are more cost-effective overall versus like a food bank? Like why is what makes school programs more cost-effective? I mean, it makes sense logistically, but. (laughs) Well, I think that um, if you were to, you know, they've done a lot of studies on kind of the the return on social investment on investing in these school meal programs. And I think it's really thanks to Kellogg's that, you know, that GFN has been able to support, um, you know, an introduction of both breakfast programs and lunch programs throughout the network. It was really at their initiative, but, um, but in in general, you know, the, the, it's, it's so much more than just providing food because once you get those meals to children at school, like I said, they're they're um, more likely to attend on a regular basis and stay in school for longer years. So they're not just getting their primary education, but also their second secondary education. And so when you look at their ability to live, you know, healthy, fulfilling lives um, and become, you know, you know, very strong economic contributors in their community, um, you're seeing a very significant return on investment for that. Um, you know, it was so interesting when I started working on these issues about a decade ago to learn that there's not that many countries that have national school meal programs. I mean, for those of us who live in the United States, we have a very strong school meal program, but even in the developed world, this is not that common. I mean, Canada, the UK, they don't have national school school meal programs. And so really at that point, yeah, it's civil society groups, it's food banks and other social service organizations that are stepping up to provide these meal programs. So in a perfect world, we would have kind of national national mandates on that. But in the absence of that, I think food banks are um, stepping into that gap and also advocating for the need for a national intervention longer term. That's fascinating. I did not know that. So thank you for sharing that. I just, you know, you think like, well, everyone must do it this way, you know, but so I that's know, isn't it surprising? I agree. It is a little surprising. <laughs> yeah. I feel like sometimes we're behind in that, in that <laughs> sense when it comes like when it comes to social services and support. So um, nationally. So I just, that was interesting. Um, Stephanie, I would love to hear your take on how and why global food companies need to work together to solve these hunger issues. This is something um, I think is really a challenge. Like a lot of companies like to do things, you know, in their pillars of whatever their CSR approach is. But can you, I would just love to hear your philosophy on, you know, forming alliances and why or if it's important. So many questions. Yeah. Absolutely. So, you know, the the, um, global issue of hunger is not something that anyone can tackle alone. It's not something any one company can tackle alone or any one organization. Um, We really need those um, uh, private-public partnerships to really come together. So when you have the power of organizations like Kellogg coming together with organizations like Global Food Banking Network and even, um, you know, governmental organizations, you know, you know, there's real power behind that can get can get great things done um, and help to advance this issue that individually one organization couldn't have done on their own. Um, you know, Lisa spoke to um, the difference that you see in um, school feeding programs globally. You know, in the U.S., we have the federally funded meal programs, but in other countries, um, they don't. And so, you know, we have been working with you know, uh, GFN and others, for example, to bring breakfast clubs to those um, 
those countries where they don't have the federally funded program, but whereas we've seen where those programs are effective. And so we've been working together with partners like GFN to advocate for those government um, mandates and things to come in and help expand the access to the food. Um, And it's much more powerful when they see organizations like Kellogg and GFN coming in together to advocate for these kinds of things. Well, and just to clarify, I've got a follow-up question for you, Stephanie, but um, Lisa, how many corporate entities support Global Food Banking Network currently? Oh, I would say about three dozen. And it's really from both across the supply chain, yeah, as well as kind of from different sectors as well. So, yeah, so that's a significant, like your organization is a significant corporate alliance, you know, supported type of organization. Mm -hmm. Um, Stephanie, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what you think is, I mean, you obviously have a great model here, but generally, why is it hard for companies to do that, to form alliances? Like sitting at somebody that works at Kellogg, like what are some of the challenges that you see in those corporate environments that make it a little bit more challenging to kind of do that sort of alliance work? Yeah. So I think, you know, some of the challenges can be, as you mentioned, um, various organizations have their own corporate goals, right? Um, even from a philanthropic perspective, you know, we have very specific goals on um, addressing hunger relief um, that we're looking to achieve. Um, and sometimes you can't always see how some of those things intersect. You know, for example, I was just talking with, um, I'm part of a Michigan coalition because um, our headquarters is based here in, in Michigan of, of various um, corporate partners. And we were talking about opportunities to collaborate. And some of the partners were saying, well, that's really great, Stephanie. I'm so glad that you do this hunger space. But, you know, we work in education. I was like, are you kidding me? <laughs> we absolutely can work together. The, the hunger programs that we're helping to support are mission critical for the kids so that they can um, have the best outcomes in their education. So even though I'm hunger in your education, we work, we can work together very collaboratively and help and meet our shared objectives. It's a little myopic. <laughs> like I'm focused <laughs> on my thing and I'm doing education and that means this, but I'm not seeing the intersectionality, if you will. So, yes, absolutely. So um, I think it's just helping to look outside the box a little bit and see how these different issues are connected. Um, and then, you know, finding the right partners like, you know, GFN to help, you know, bring that all together. Lisa, you talked about this a couple of minutes ago, or you at least touched upon it, but I'd like to ask you a little bit more direct, directly, how do you think governments should get involved in this? And, you know, that's something we don't really talk about on the podcast all that often is that like public, private, um, NGO type collaboration. But for something like this, it is super critical. So can you talk a little bit more about, you know, what a good model is, what they should be doing, what they are doing, what's working, what's not? Yeah. Well, you know, definitely in the hunger space, I I think if the COVID pandemic has showed us anything is that the food system is very, and access to it is very tenuous. And so in the absence of, um, of governments, you know, you know, being involved in how they're going to provide equitable access to food for their population, um, just left a chance. You you are losing a lot of people, um, a lot of people in that circumstance. Um, from the food relief perspective, I would say I would say a couple of things. Um, the first thing is that I think governments should ensure that they are not. 
um, preventing that they don't have any policy barriers to kind of food flowing freely across throughout the country. And let me give you an example. Um, uh, you know, in several places where there are food banks in our network, there's actually a disincentive to donating wholesome edible food that is just as, you know, nutritious and wholesome that could very well be eaten by, by someone who is in need. Um, there could be a tax on it. So some companies have to pay VAT if they choose to donate that product. Um, other times there's a significant liability risk. That's something that policy has not taken care of. So this all means that it's actually a better business decision from a cost and a legal standpoint to throw that food away. And so especially in the early days of the pandemic, we saw enormous amounts of, you know, waste, right, through disruptions in the supply chain. And in normal times, about a third of all the food that is produced for human consumption goes to waste. So making sure that there is a, uh, I think, policy um, incentives or at the least no barriers to donation of that product is hugely helpful. Uh, and the other thing that, that governments can do is really think about how they can be supporting their agricultural sector and in the same way doing it for distribution. So in the United States, for example, you know, obviously farmers are having a really tough time. You have the U.S. government purchasing a significant amount of commodities, you know, and that's all being then distributed through the food bank network. That's a very positive thing that can be done. Um, the other thing I'll say too is about the school meals program. I mean, we really need to see a national national leadership on the creation of a school meals program in countries. So those, I think, are three things that, that we've really been talking a lot about with our partners, and they have been talking to their national leadership about. That's fascinating. Um, and I didn't know any of that. So it, it makes perfect sense when you say it. Now, are both of your organizations involved in, in um, advocacy to get laws like that changed? Yes, we do work with organizations like Global Food Banking Network when there are opportunities to advocate for these kinds of things. And I mentioned, um, you know, on the school feeding programs, you know, we've been doing some work, um, you know, uh, both within the U.S. where there's opportunities to enhance what we're doing and then outside of the U.S. where there's opportunities to bring those programs um, to schools. You know, we've been working we're working uh, with our partners to help advocate for that. You too, Lisa. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that's, a function, that's the function of the Global Food Banking Network is that government advocacy piece. Yeah, definitely through our partners on the ground. They're really in the best position to, to do that. One thing that's very interesting is that we've seen an increasing number of our partners really almost serving as the data arm, I would say, on the hunger and food insecurity space. You know, for example, you you know, Singapore, which all of us think of, and it rightfully so that it's one of the wealthiest countries in the world, you know, they actually don't even have a poverty line and they've got about 20, 20 percent of their population that are still struggling daily to, to get enough food. Um, and so the food bank there actually commissioned a national study to take a look at what the hunger situation was in Singapore. And that is actually informing now a government response. So I think a first step with all things with advocacy is making sure you have strong data and the data yeah. in many places around hunger, around food insecurity, and even around food loss and waste is still, still very thin. So our partners are really doing what they can to provide that gap first. And that gives, that informs, I think, a very positive national sure. advocacy agenda. Yeah, that's such a great point. Thank you for sharing that, Lisa. And that makes um, complete sense. And I love that that initiative is being taken because, you know, it's hard to enact legislation if you don't know exactly the scope of the issue or even to pay attention to it. So, um, Stephanie, is there any, are there ways that food insecurity is different around the world than it is in the U.S.? I mean, we talked about school feeding programs, um, so that's an obvious difference. But um, just generally, are there things that 
you know, you guys know firsthand because you deal with this on a daily basis, but those of us who live in the U.S. and may not have an awareness of how things are happening around the globe, are there are there differences? Yeah, I mean, there are certainly some differences, um, you know, as you think about, um, you know, particularly like issues of hidden hunger, um, you know, based on where you are and the kind of food that you have access to, um, you know, it can create different deficiencies in the nutrients that you're getting as part of your diet. Um, you know, so I see um, a lot of work that we're doing in different areas of the country. You know, we've got a project in India, for example, where we're helping to, um, you know, work with local partners to talk about the importance of breakfast and the right nutrients that you should be getting at breakfast. Um, um, because not all families are getting, um, you know, they're eating a very carbohydrate based um, diet that doesn't have a lot of, you know, maybe other fruits or vegetables incorporated into it. Um, you know, so we've been working on a program there and, you know, that can vary based on, you know, um, where you are. And then, you know, Lisa can speak to this, I think, pretty well, too. Obviously, it's very different in terms of, you know, not just like the facilitation of the, the school programs, but the other feeding programs and the distribution of how you get the food to, um, you know, where it needs to go. You know, not everybody has a strong infrastructure. And, um, you know, like I think of our food donations in the U.S., okay, the truck backs up to our warehouse, the food gets loaded and off it goes to the food bank. That's not as easily said and done in other (laughs) regions, right? So, um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of uh, differences and nuances, you know, to Lisa's point that the local partners on the ground all know also well um, and, you know, really think creatively about how they can make sure that they're getting the, the food to the people who need it. Excellent points. Anything to add there, Lisa? Just I see you shaking your head. I want to just make yeah. sure I'm giving you a chance. Yeah. You know, one of the things I just wanted to, we talked a little bit about partnerships and, and things like that. And I do think that this, the the, the, the horrendous um, impact of, of the pandemic has created, though, an opportunity for truly unconventional partnerships. Um, and so, so I, I think that's something that, that we're trying to keep in mind and our partners are keeping in mind on the ground that this is the moment to really think about, you know, how can we be especially creative to get food where it needs to go in ways that we might not have been open to or able to prior to the pandemic. And I'll give you just a couple of examples. Um, you know, a, a, a big a big focus of, of ours um, even now has been how how do we serve those remote communities? How do we go the, extra, the last mile, right? Um, because, you know, traditionally food banks distribute through agency partners. So that would be like your food pantries, your homeless shelters, orphanages, job trainers, things like that. Um, and the pandemic regrettably has really stretched their, those types of organizations. And we're seeing, you know, unfortunately, significant closures across communities. So food banks are shifting to more direct service than they have in the past. But um, so, for example, especially to remote communities, this can be really difficult. But, you know, our colleagues at Food Banks Canada, you know, they're working with an airline to fly food like way up into the north where usually it costs thousands of dollars to get there. And then we're seeing our wow. partners in like Brazil and Colombia and Ecuador getting in boats to go into the Amazon to deliver to indigenous wow. peoples there. And so there is just this incredible moment for partnership. And I just want to, you know, Stephanie has been a great thought partner to me and to our whole organization on this, you know, because they, of course, being, you know, one of the leaders um, globally on the food manufacturing side, have such incredible networks with retailers, with suppliers. And one of the things that I have been so impressed and grateful for from Kellogg's side 
side is their willingness to really step into the gap and encourage the other companies that they work with, you know, to be thinking about how they can be making a difference on the hunger front during this really challenging time, always, but especially during COVID-19. So, you know, I think people traditionally think of helping when it comes from corporate, you know, when you're thinking about corporate engagement in causes as donating money, which is fantastic. And yes, it does need to be done or sometimes donating product. But to your point, Lisa, I mean, all of these pivots that we're seeing, the ones that are really, really good are companies using the assets that they have. And whether that's like logistics or transportation or knowledge about a way to go from point A to point B in the most efficient way, most cost effective way packaging. Like there's all sorts of assets that companies bring to the table that they don't always think about. So I love that you made that point and I thank you so much. Well, we are at the end of our time, although I feel like I could talk about this subject forever. So thank you both so much for joining me. Um, Stephanie, if people want to learn more about Kellogg and their involvement in hunger programs around the world, where would they do that online? Yes, absolutely. So check out kelloggcompany.com. We've got a lot of information there. And also you can follow us in our social channels, Facebook, Twitter, and, and all of those things. And how about you, Lisa? Where can people learn more about the Global Food Banking Network online if they'd like to do that? Yes, please visit us on our website, foodbanking.org. And you can also find a food bank in your community through that site. And then we are also on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook under the handle food banking. Food banking. Okay, well, you will. I will put all of that in the show notes, which you can find at engageforgood.com. Stephanie and Lisa, thank you so, so much for joining me today on this episode. It was a real pleasure to talk to you. And thank you for the good works you guys are both doing in the world. Thanks, Megan. Yeah, thank you so much.